We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla and I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. Today we're doing something a little bit different and we are launching a little mini-series which is all about tropes that are used in stories, so fiction novels but also in broader media. So we're hoping to do a few of these to go out in the next couple of months and depending how things go we might pick it up and do some more episodes about tropes as well because mm. <laughs> I think they're really interesting to yes. be honest and cool to talk about I guess where they come from and how they come up in stories again and again and mm. What some of them get right and what some of them might not get so correct. That's right. If you don't know what a trope is, the basic definition is that it is a recurring theme or idea seen in stories over time. So for example, a comic relief best friend, a mysterious stranger, a magical sword, only one bed in romance novel. <laughs> Oh no, there's only one bed. Whatever shall we do? Huddling <laughs> for warmth in a cave. Of course. Yep. <laughs> it's an excellent Lots trouble. of examples. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So in terms of what inspired this series, so we don't think that tropes aren't necessarily bad, but some of them can perpetuate stereotypes about mental health issues as well as other stereotypes such as sexist or racist stereotypes. And we wanted to highlight both the good and the bad and encourage our listeners to recognize these tropes and to think critically. So before we get started on our discussion, please keep in mind that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. We are also talking as professionals and readers today, not necessarily from lived experience. Finally, we will also be including some spoilers, but we'll let you know when these are coming up. We particularly want to talk about Bridgerton, specifically the first book in the series, The Duke and I. So this episode might have come into fruition because we wanted to talk about Bridgerton yes. a bit <laughs> and kind of inspired us to start this little trope series because we've had a few interesting discussions about Bridgerton, not just about how dreamy the Duke of Hastings <laughs> is, but a few other things going on too. Mm, yeah, other more serious things, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah, <laughs> nothing if not serious all the time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right, let's get started with our episode. First of all, let's have a chat about what do we mean by commitment issues. So according to a actually a really good, I guess, database of tropes called TV Tropes. So this is a website, tvtropes.com, I think. Mm -hmm. Commitment issues is a trope where a character doesn't want to settle down with their love interest. That is that they don't want to commit to their love interest in some way. Of course, there are lots of examples. So some that come to mind include Chandler Bing from Friends, mm -hmm. uh, Barney from How I Met Your Mother, and pretty much the entire plot of movies such as Runaway Bride. Despite these characters' commitment issues, nearly always they will get together with someone at the end of the plot. Keep in mind that most well-known examples from popular media are heterosexual monogamous relationships, so that is what we are focusing on today, but we fully recognize the diversity of experiences here. 
Absolutely. A lot of romance novels include this trope in some capacity. So how many times have you seen a romance novel, romance story, where one character isn't quite sure about whether they want to commit to the other? But by the end of the novel, they are, of course, together and have their happily ever after or their happily ever after for now. The most topical example at the moment would probably be Simon from Bridgerton, so the Duke of Hastings, who would rather die than marry his love interest, Daphne. (laughs) Bit extreme, but, you know. (laughs) Oh, Simon. Yeah. Yeah. So as we mentioned, we will be talking about Bridgerton a little bit more later in this episode. Yeah. But first, what is some of the psychology behind commitment issues? In real life, there are a lot of reasons why people might have commitment issues. They might have certain beliefs about relationships. So thinking that a committed relationship is boring, peer pressure from friends not to settle down, fear of missing out on the single life, Mm. belief that committing is happening too fast compared to others in their social groups, perhaps. Mm -hmm. They may also have certain beliefs about themselves. Like believing they're not desirable or attractive, not good enough, and having worries about the future. Or they might have beliefs about the other person in the relationship, such as worrying that this person is not a good match for them. So these commitment issues are usually a result of a person's previous experiences as well as their personality and thought patterns. So, you know, Priscilla, you just covered a lot of examples of like the thought processes that might be going on that maintain Mm. why someone is having trouble committing to a person, but they don't just come out of nowhere. There's usually something that's happened in a person's life that leads them to develop those beliefs about themselves or about other people. So, Lots of things can cause this. So, for example, the media. So if you watch a certain number of stories and a certain um, pathway that tends to exist in relationships in media, you might have some beliefs about what should or shouldn't be happening in your own relationships. Previous negative experiences with relationships, such as being neglected by a previous partner, being abandoned or cheated on, or just not being in a very healthy relationship, Mm. as well as peer groups. So what other people around you are experiencing and how they're behaving and what messages they're sending to you. One key thing as well is that commitment issues may also be impacted by your parents' relationships. So we are going to start going a little bit more nerdy when we are doing this and going a bit bit more into our studies and the theory behind this. So we're interested in talking about attachment theory. Let's define what attachment theory is to begin with. According to this theory, the blueprint for the way you relate to other people is formed in the first few years of your life with your main caregiver. So as social creatures, we need to bond to someone It's just an intrinsic human need. The type of bonding that we have affects how we learn to regulate our own emotions, how fearful we are, and how we approach future relationships. This theory was first applied and developed in Western cultures, so small differences have been observed across cultures. However, the key aspects of this theory are considered to be pretty much universal. And just note as well that this theory was first uh, developed and then later refined in around the 60s by uh, Ainsworth and Bowlby. And since then, it's been studied a lot and, you know, has been critiqued to death. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, the, the research is pretty solid that it seems to be 
um, a pretty pretty solidly backed up theory that's been observed in lots of different studies, lots of different cultures. And there are these particular patterns that we're about to go through in a moment. Once this blueprint is established, so it kind of stays with you to a degree and it influences how you approach relationships and empathy, including romantic relationships. I'll just stop and quickly mention that lots of experiences also impact on our relationships. It's not just your relationship with your own parents, but it is an important one and one that is of interest to us, hence we're talking about it today. I was going to put some sort of metaphor about blueprints and buildings, but I know nothing about architecture, so (laughs) I won't do that. Well, this might be the blueprint, but depending on the building company you get, your life experiences, that depends how it's actually built, I suppose. But I hope that makes sense. I (laughs) apologize to any architects and engineers who may be listening. We will stick to our field. Um, Yes. Okay. So there are four main types of attachment. There is secure attachment, which is the most desirable type. Mm. When your caregiver knows your sign and responds appropriately, shows affection, and is emotionally available when you are distressed, you are likely to have a positive view of yourself and the world. So you can be independent, but you also want to have close relationships with other people. People with this style of attachment are not likely to develop commitment issues unless, as we said before, there are other life experiences. Kind of like the healthiest blueprint in a way, the Mm -hmm. one that sets you up to have the most positive expectations in relationships and positive behavior towards others. So lots of benefits that come from having this secure attachment style. So that's why we think Mm -hmm. it's the most desirable. That's right. The second style of attachment is called anxious avoidant. A summary, I suppose, of this style is to get close is to be rejected. As a baby, your caregiver might be dismissive of your concerns and feelings and shows little affection. So people with this attachment style tend to be loners and rather emotionally removed from others. This might already be ringing some bells when we're talking about commitment issues. But yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. So the third style is known as anxious ambivalent attachment. So a summary of this attachment style is to be close is to feel smothered. So in these instances, um, a caregiver likely wants to keep a child close and does this by accepting difficult behavior, pleading with a child when they're upset or has issues with leaving the child. So people who have this attachment style tend to seek approval a lot from others, but have a lot of self-doubt and potentially self-esteem issues. Can often be feeling quite insecure in relationships and often feel quite dependent on a significant other. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of quote-unquote clingy attachment yep. style. Um, I don't like using that word clingy, but that's the, mm. the one that comes to mind from this. But not feeling very secure in relationships essentially. So you can see how that might lead to some issues with how healthy your relationship might be too. Yeah. And then finally, we have disorganized attachment. So this is number four of four. So the source of my support is also the source of danger. So this is a particularly difficult um, experience to have, and it's not really actually considered an attachment. It's considered a lack of an attachment. Mm-hmm. So if you have this disorganized style, this is often found in individuals who've had some kind of significant early childhood trauma, particularly abuse from their parents. So um, types of violence, um, sexual abuse. So often these people might want relationships until they're 
emotionally close and then they become afraid that they're going to get hurt and often have a lot of difficulty trusting others. And there are another of difficulties in adulthood that are associated with having this disorganized style as well. It's not a very nice blueprint to have, I suppose. It can set you up for a lot of difficulties. It's definitely not... um, it doesn't mean that you can't have a great life if this no. was your attachment style, but it, it does set things to be a bit trickier, unfortunately, for people who experience this. Remember when we have this lecture and everyone was looking around like, oh, that one's me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty much every psych lecture we have yeah. is everybody self-diagnosing themselves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I definitely have this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have a suspicion about what my own attachment style is. Yeah, same. So those are the four styles of attachment. So secure, anxious avoidant, anxious ambivalent, and disorganized. Now we get into our excuse to talk more about Bridgerton. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm Barbara. And I'm Lauren. We are the hosts of Badass Literature Society, a book review podcast where we take book recommendations from listeners like you, read them, and then discuss them on our show. Join us once a month as we dive into the books you picked and talk about them. And don't miss our bonus episodes covering all sorts of random bookish topics that come out in between reviews. Don't worry, if you want to read one of the books, the first part of each episode is designated spoiler-free, so you can listen and see if you'd like to read it, and then come back and listen to the rest later. You can find Badass Literature Society on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and anywhere else you like to listen. Now, back to the show. So... Um, we essentially want to use Bridgerton to illustrate a couple of these attachment styles. So applying attachment theory to the main couple from The Duke and I, which mm-hmm. is the first Bridgerton book, and the focus of the Netflix series Bridgerton. If you're not one of the, what, six million households that watch the series? That's isn't, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it now like the most watched on Netflix? I think so. It's done very well for itself anyway um, and definitely caused a bit of a surge in romance novels sales too, which is really exciting. (laughs) I'm just happy because this might mean more romance adaptations. Yay. (laughs) Um, So spoilers coming up for Bridgerton. Here's a summary of The Duke and I. In the ballrooms and drawing rooms of Regency London, rules abound. From their earliest days, children of aristocrats learn how to address an earl and curtsy before a prince, while other dictates of the ton are unspoken yet universally understood. 
a proper duke should be imperious and aloof. A young marriageable lady should be amiable, but not too amiable. Daphne Bridgerton has always failed at the latter. The fourth of eight siblings in her close-knit family, she has formed friendships with the most eligible young men in London. Everyone likes Daphne for her kindness and wit, but no one truly desires her. She's simply too honest for that, too unwilling to play the romantic games that captivate gentlemen. Amiability is not a characteristic shared by Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings. Recently returned to England from abroad, he intends to shun both marriage and society, just as his callous father shunned Simon throughout his painful childhood. Yet, an encounter with his best friend's sister offers another option. If Daphne agrees to a fake courtship, Simon can deter the mamas who parade their daughters before him. Daphne, meanwhile, will see her prospects and her reputation soar. The plan works like a charm, at first. But amid the glittering, gossipy, cutthroat world of London's elite, there is only one certainty. Love ignores every rule. Okay, so lo- long synopsis. <laughs> um, yet, believe it or not, much less plot happens in the novel than happens in the TV show in terms of characters and side plots and so mm, on. So. Yeah. We are mostly focusing on the novel today, which is very much centered around the relationship between Daphne and Simon, our two main characters. So what if we apply the attachment theory to our main couple? Okay, what do you think about Daphne, Elise? <laughs> okay, so um, if I had to guess, I would say that Daphne has a secure attachment style. So keep in mind that People who have secure attachment styles have a caregiver who's responsive to their needs, growing up in generally quite a safe safe environment. Essentially, their caregiver responds to their emotions appropriately and feels like a safe base to them. So in this case, Daphne's mother, Violet, seems to be quite an affectionate mother. She's quite in tune with her children's needs even though she has eight children yeah my goodness can't even imagine uh, oh, <laughs> I know it was common then and obviously still happens today but it yeah. does feel like a lot of children mm. um, so you know she seems to be quite a um, responsive mother gets along well with her children and is quite the safe base for them although you know as we <laughs> As we know in the story, if you have read or seen Bridgerton, um, maybe not so good with communicating about sex ed. Shocking, uh, considering she has eight children, so they have had to come from somewhere. (laughs) You'd think she would have known what key messages to tell her daughter instead of just vague illusions, which cause a lot of complications throughout the story. There you go. Um, But anyway, Daphne, as an adult, wants a loving relationship. She wants a love match rather than a match that is just for finances or reputation, which is still quite common in this Regency era novel. Mm-hmm. And she has quite a hard time understanding some of the difficulties that Simon has with wanting that type of relationship. So we'll go into Simon and his beliefs soon. But yeah, Daphne herself seems to be pretty secure in herself and pretty secure in her wants and her needs for a relationship. Mm. We'll mention though that just because somebody has a 
secure attachment style doesn't mean that they have all of the answers when it comes to a relationship or that they're automatically a good person to be in a relationship with. So Mm -hmm. Daphne throughout the story is not without her faults, not Mm -hmm. without her own communications issues and definitely makes a lot of her own mistakes along the way. And part of this is very much due to the environment that she's raised in, the expectations that have been placed on her and the lack of education in some areas, particularly around sex ed. And then we've got our very handsome male lead, Simon. What do you think about his attachment style? Mm, Simon's a bit more complicated, I feel, than Daphne. Mm. I think his behaviours and the way he views and approaches romantic relationships reflect what we would expect from people with avoidant attachment. As we mentioned before, he would rather die than commit himself to a marriage. Yep. <laughs> doesn't want to develop any relationship with anyone, as far as we know. Mm, maybe friendships. He can yeah. have a few sort of ongoing male friendships, but that's about all that he's dedicating himself to. Yeah, nothing that involves being vulnerable at the next level because I think even his best friend doesn't know everything about his upbringing and we find out throughout the plot that Simon's aversion to relationship or romantic relationships are due to the vow that he made his father when Mm. his father was dying he's vowed to end the hasting line is that the hasting line or the basset line I can't (laughs) remember This is a question for me. For some reason, I thought that Simon's surname was Hastings for a while, but I think it's actually Bassett. It is, yeah. So yeah, so he's the Duke of Hastings, but his surname is Bassett. I don't, I don't know British yeah. monarchy and dukedom <laughs> very well. So there's probably some um, yeah. history buff listening, going, "Oh no, <laughs> terrible!" Um, yeah, don't, don't at us about this, no. please. <laughs> The point is, he would like his family tree to end with him, so he Mm -hmm. can't have any heirs. And so why does he want to end the line? Why is that so important to him? Because Simon's father was awful to him. Mm. He was absolutely dismissive of Simon due to Simon's speech impediment. Mm. And he called Simon a lot of names. Yeah, very ableist, very, very... um emotionally and verbally abusive I would say he was towards Simon yeah and so no affection was ever shown to Simon Simon was sent sent away and I think his father pretended he was dead for many years yeah pretty awful father yeah he was not doing his job and Simon's mother died in childbirth as well so she wasn't around to be um, a caregiver either. And Simon was essentially raised by the staff. Mm. Luckily enough, he did have some very kind staff around him who kind of took him under his wing and taught him what his father would not teach him and Mm. showed him love and affection. But the relationship with his father, I guess, was still always hanging over his head because he, at least when he was a child, he desperately sought his father's approval and his father just wouldn't give it to him. He just kept pushing him away to the point where Simon even, um, through a lot of hard work, he managed to reduce the impact of his stutter to the point where he was barely stuttering at all. But even being in the presence of his father was enough for Mm. that to kind of come back and 
yeah, his father was then dismissive of him once again when he heard him stuttering again. It's very yeah. really sad, the relationship between Simon and his father. Yeah, it is. Um, so when he gets this relationship with Daphne, he has a really hard time communicating honestly with her. And that became one of the main issues in their relationship. By the end of the story, he seems to have changed his mind, basically, on marriage and children. Um, and he has a child by the end of the book. Mm. But if if we want to be realistic about it, I imagine he would have to keep working on being less self-sufficient throughout mm. their relationship and yep. probably wouldn't change his mind that quickly about children. Probably not, no. So, <laughs> so in the book, um, and I guess to an extent in the TV show as well, mm. um, Simon starts to overcome that desire for revenge upon his father by um and that was really the driving reason why he didn't want to have a marriage and have an heir Mm. because he wanted to take that revenge on his father and you know there's there's a lot of plot that happens in between yeah but that's the main one (laughs) yeah but essentially um you know he does fall in love with Daphne and she very much wants to have a child and wants to be in that marriage Mm -hmm. and wants to do the traditional thing yeah and he doesn't want that at the start and starts to learn starts to overcome that through a lot of trials and tribulations with Daphne and sort of eventually coming to terms with there not really being much you know quote-unquote point Mm -hmm. in trying to avenge his father and starting to perhaps come to more of a term of acceptance about what that relationship was like so We learn in the book that there were a series of letters that his father left left him, for example, um, mm. which were not quite an apology, but were, I think, his father maybe starting to try to reach out to him more in his older age before he did die. Mm. But yeah, it still um, still happens fairly quickly in that kind of romance novel classic, yeah, way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, happily yeah. ever after. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, but look, just back to attachment theory, I would agree that Simon probably has this avoidant attachment style because of that relationship with his father, his father pushing him away. Um, You know, we mentioned that the sort of the description of avoidant attachment is to get close is to be rejected. So a caregiver being dismissive of concerns and feelings and showing very little affection. It's definitely what happened with Mm. Simon's father to quite an extreme degree as well. So, yeah, I I do want to acknowledge that what his father was doing was abusive towards Simon and hence having such a big impact on him. Mm. But then in this story you've got somebody with secure attachment falling in love with someone with avoidant attachment, Yeah, which can cause a lot of difficulties. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, watch the series if you want to know what those difficulties are. Yes, yes, we won't go into all of the plot details. No, today. because we will go into a rant about stuff, so let's not. We could double the length of this episode if we wanted to rant about it, but mm. let's just say that both characters do some fairly awful things to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think in both of our opinions, there's something that Daphne does to Simon, which is not very adequately handled, I would say in Mm -hmm. either the novel or the TV show. Slightly different between them, but... Yeah, equally bad. Equally bad, and I do wish that 
the writers had approached that with a little bit more complexity. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good point for us to note that secure attachment is perhaps the most common attachment style, but it is not universal. From the research that we could find, estimates suggest that about 50% of the population is secure, 20% is anxious, 25% is avoidant, and 5% is disorganized. And as romance novels would like to teach us, it is possible to recognize our fears and unhealthy patterns and work towards making better choices, as Mm. Simon and Daphne eventually learn as well. So... What do you think the Duke and I gets right about this trope, this commitment issues trope? I think that they hit the nail on the head with how parental relationships impact on our relationship styles, beliefs, and patterns as adults. Mm. And that the emotional abuse that you experience as a child can stay with you and have a big impact throughout your life. Remember that excellent tweet that we saw from the, the podcast, What Would Denver Do? Yes. <laughs> Men would rather end the ducal line than go to therapy. <laughs> so good. Uh, yes, yes. Mm. So I guess, yeah, it, it sort of gets the idea of like what causes these commitment issues. Mm. I think it does a really good job of that, Um more so than what I think a lot of other stories do where these commitment issues sometimes come out of nowhere. Mm. Well, what about what they get wrong, do you think? What was problematic about how the Duke and I handled this trope? So I think as you've mentioned earlier, it does sort of, the commitment issues do get resolved quite quickly. Mm. By the end of the novel, Simon, who originally, as we mentioned, would rather die than Mm. get married and have children is married with children. (laughs) We learn in the book Mm. that Simon and Daphne get married and have four children in four years. Oh, God. Um, Which is, you know, for some, it's a a complete 180. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and Simon, to the best of my understanding, was very happy with that, was a loving dad, a loving husband, Um, It very much felt like a happily ever after Mm. in that final chapter as well as the epilogue. So we learn a lot of this in the epilogue, which was released a number of years after The Duke and I, but is um, packaged as part of standard editions of The Duke and I. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, like (laughs) four kids, what do you mean? They had one kid, didn't they? No, they actually um, have four and then she becomes pregnant again at like 40. So, um, Yeah. yeah, basically at the end of the day, they're very like settled in a traditional way for the Regency mm. era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we've mentioned, Simon has a lot of childhood trauma that he hasn't really worked through, mm. um, not to the best of my understanding though. Like, <laughs> Yes, he started to overcome some of those beliefs, but if he were a real person, I feel like he would need a bit more time. And for them both, I suppose, to work through some of the difficulties that happen early in their marriage throughout the book. Mm. It does get resolved in quite quite a short, sharp turnaround time, I think. Yeah. What would you like to see less of when it comes to this 
trope in novels like all tropes it's fine they're there mm-hmm. you yeah. know and they happen they're often a reflection of real life so people yeah. do have difficulties with commitment in real life so mm-hmm. you've got to include that at some point but yeah. I would like to see fewer oversimplifications of why commitment issues occur and mm-hmm. um, on that note like I mentioned fewer instances of commitment issues just coming coming out of nowhere coming out of the blue and as illustrated by Simon, uh, I'd like to see fewer characters who don't want to be in a relationship or married with kids completely flipping the switch and being okay with commitment through their happily ever after, at least not not so smoothly. Um, yeah. Just a little bit more realism there I think is the challenge. Mm-hmm. What about you? Um, I agree with those. Mm-hmm. I also would like to see less of commitment issues being seen as a fatal flaw I suppose Mm. a personal fault or failing rather than this complicated thing that could have arisen out of several difficult experiences so people with commitment issues or non-secure attachment styles are not inherently bad Mm. they're not evil people these issues come from somewhere and hopefully how do I say this in a nice way (laughs) (laughs) um it's possible to work through these issues yes i was going to say if they would like to be in a healthy relationship you would hope that they would work on these issues and develop self-awareness about their patterns yes Mm -hmm. yeah um, commitment issues is not the same thing as being immoral yes essentially exactly on the flip side what would we like to see more of i would love to see authors maybe keeping attachment theory in mind and including more of a background as to why their characters have commitment issues. And I would love to see characters learning to overcome commitment issues through working on themselves and their own beliefs and not just meeting that absolutely perfect person. Mm. Go to therapy. (laughs) We love therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least do some self-reflection. Yes. You're not going to go to therapy. (laughs) Yes. Don't. Yeah, absolutely. Do not put the weight on this dream person to make everything all right. Yeah. What about you, Elise? What would you like to see more of? Yeah, I I agree completely. And one thing I want to add is, Related to commitment issues, um, I, I would like to see more validation of different life pathways that might be considered less traditional mm-hmm. um, without these being disregarded as commitment issues. So, you know, it's perfectly fine to not want to get married um, or mm-hmm. to not want kids or to not do things in a certain order, just as, you know, it's it's fine if you don't want to be in a monogamous relationship as long as everybody's consenting and yeah. you're communicating with any intimate partners you have yeah. and you're on um on the same level with what you want or at least working towards that point mm-hmm. there are many different ways to do it and that doesn't mean that someone has commitment issues just because they don't maybe want to do things the the quote-unquote traditional or the heteronormative way so yeah commitment issues I think are very separate from yeah. that and I would like to see those being kept a little bit more separate Mm, excellent and that wraps up our summary of this trope hopefully you've learned something about attachment theory (laughs) now we will quickly mention what is going up on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode on our website some of the resources we'll link to include a summary of attachment theory if you'd like to learn more 
and some more information about commitment issues and how to work through these if you would like to learn about that as well. Now, this might come as not at all a surprise to some of you, but there are whole shelves of books with commitment issues as a trope on Goodreads, and we will mm. link to that as well. We will link to the page about commitment issues from tvtropes.com if you would like to have a more in-depth read of this mm. particular trope. TV Tropes is one of those websites that you can go to and just get completely lost because you learn that everything is a trope and everything yeah. is linked. So in the summary for commitment issues, there's all these different subtypes of commitment issues and other tropes that come up. And I start, I always start going down the rabbit hole of learning about tropes because I think they're so interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you want to know more about Bridgerton or if you've seen the TV show but not sure if you want to commit to an eight-book series... Check out What Would Danbury Do, a podcast that summarizes the Bridgerton books and also gives excellent recommendations about what else to read. See, I really need to check it out because I have watched Netflix and read book one and I don't know if I want to commit to the rest of the books. So <laughs> I'm sorry, like it's not like me to not recommend a romance novel, but it's just dated, I feel. And yeah, there are other romance novels that address some of the tropes and issues better. Like it was okay. It was enjoyable enough, but I did have quite a number of criticisms about yeah. the plot line. And to be honest, I enjoyed mm. the Netflix show <laughs> more than I enjoyed the book, which I don't often say when it comes to books versus their adaptations. But yeah, I think it was modernized a bit, but also with the number of subplots going on and the plots that are drawn, I think from latter novels or just modified um i did find it quite enjoyable and that wraps us up for today and it also wraps up our first episode of this little mini series please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted the next episode should go up in april the second in this cool mini series Remember to check out our website, novelfeelings.com, where we post an episode summary, links to further reading, as well as information about getting support for you or someone you care about. And if you like us, please remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to ask us a question or chat? You can send us a message via our website. To keep up to date with us, remember to follow us on social media. At the moment, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads. Find us through at novel underscore feelings. You can also find my bookstagram, which is suffering in hiatus at the moment, but I'm still <laughs> there. Um, it is at pave with books with an extra S. Okay, well, that wraps us up for today. Thank you for listening to our first episode about tropes and remember to tune in next month for our next one. So thank you so much. Catch you next time. See you then. Bye.